Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride, and I have to do a special shout-out to the friends that I met at the Cascade Mire, tuning in from Holland. They say every week they're tuning in from Holland, so it's quite a commute. Great to have you along for the ride as well. We are in the fourth week of a series that we've called The Essentials, and the series is all about what someone needs to believe in order to be a Christian. And as I've mentioned, I really wanted to do this series because, well, whether you realize it or not, over the past few decades, many people, and especially young people, are walking away from the Christian faith because of things that aren't essential to the Christian faith. In other words, they're leaving unnecessarily. Uh, said a bit differently, Christianity in our time is experiencing a profound challenge that stems from certain Christians adding things to the list of things that must be believed in order to be a Christian. But as it turns out, these things aren't necessarily what Jesus intended for his followers. In fact, sometimes they can actually take things in the wrong direction, which, of course, brings me back to the question that drives this entire series. It goes like this. So what beliefs are essential to the Christian faith? In other words, what must someone affirm in order to be a Christian? What's essential and what isn't? Well, in case you're joining us for the first time today, what I want to do is take a few minutes and sort of catch you up on where we've been because the series kind of builds one week to the next. But so far, we've covered three essentials. Uh, in the first week, we unpacked what I believe to be the first and foremost essential, and I phrased it like this. Jesus is God's son and our king. In other words, Christians must believe that Jesus was and really is the Son of God who was sent to earth by God and who will one day rule all people in the kingdom of God. Uh, we also noted in that first week that this idea is pretty much the only thing that Christians have agreed upon since the very beginning. And so it's also the thing around which everything else is organized and prioritized. That's why we wanted to start there. So that was week one. Uh, then in week two, and a whole bunch of you gave me a lot of feedback on week two, uh, we reflected on the absolutely incredible reality that Jesus came to show us what God is like. In other words, when you find yourself thinking about God, like who is he, what is he like, and how does he feel about me, then you should think about Jesus because according to Jesus, the closest that you can get to understanding God and what he's like is him. He came to put the heart of God on display. So that was week two. And in fact, it, I actually inspired myself. Isn't that funny? Sometimes it happens. So um, I'm building this into an eight-part series that we're going to do in January. So it's going to be called What is God Like? So far it's looking really good. It's like half a page. Not, it needs some work. But yeah, we're going to look at eight scenes from the life of Jesus. It might be nine. I haven't decided yet. But so far it's eight. Um, and what do these scenes tell us? about God and how he feels about us. But anyway, that was week two. Uh, then last week, we explored what I uh, called like the big picture mission of Jesus. And we said it this way. We said, Jesus came to do what only he could do. Said a bit differently, Jesus came to solve a problem that only he could solve. He came to get right what those first people got wrong. And, and if you missed that or any of these talks, I would really encourage you to go back and catch up on our website. It is well worth your time. All right, so that said, with our time together today, we get to unpack a fourth essential of the Christian faith. And uh, to show you what it is, what I want to do is actually take you 
to what is likely the oldest statement in the entire New Testament. Uh, Bible scholars believe it to be decades older than the accounts of the life of Jesus and decades older than the letters from early Jesus followers that are in the New Testament. Uh, it's a quotation taken from an early Christian creed, and creed is just a fancy way to say like a statement of faith. And this particular creed, as best we can tell, was written just a few years after the birth of the church. And it was included in a letter written by a pastor named Paul to early Christians living in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. So here's what Paul said to them. He wrote, what I received, I passed on to you. And it is most important of all. So I say, Paul, what is most essential? What's right at the core of the Christian faith? He goes, here's what it is. And he literally says, here's what it is. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as scripture said he would. And by scripture here, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And he says, and he was buried. And that actually is the first part of today's essential, namely that Jesus died for our sins and was buried. And before I show you what comes next, I want to pause and I want to ask you a question. Do you know why the earliest Christians wanted to affirm that Jesus was actually buried? I mean, why was that such a big deal to them? Well, as it turns out, it was important to them because they needed everyone to know that Jesus really died. In other words, he didn't faint, he didn't pass out, like he was dead. And that's important because of what comes next. In fact, here's what Paul wrote next. He said that following his burial, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scripture, again, the Old Testament scripture said he would be. And then look at this. He says, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the 12 apostles. That's those first followers of Jesus. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. So there was this gathering of early Christians and all of a sudden, Jesus showed up in their midst. I like to imagine they were probably talking about the resurrection, and then and some were like, no, that didn't happen. And there he was. So there you go. Um, anyway, then he says he appeared to James. That was his brother. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul writes, last of all, he also appeared to me. And that's, so that's the second part of today's essential. It goes like this. Jesus rose from the grave and was seen. Now notice that in quoting from the creed, Paul emphasized that these early Christians uh, recorded that after his resurrection, Jesus was really seen alive again by hundreds of people. And Paul did this because he wanted his readers to understand that Jesus really rose from the dead. In other words, the resurrection wasn't a vision, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't an illusion. Jesus had been buried and he was alive Again, it's almost like Paul says to his readers, hey, if you were to come with me to the city of Jerusalem, I could literally introduce you to people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It's like as unbelievable as it sounds, it really happened. Jesus died for our sins and was buried and he rose from the grave and was seen. So that's the essential for today, but what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to do my best to answer a question that I've been asked more times than I can count by people outside of faith, sort of looking in and wondering about the Christian faith, some of them actually seeking to come to faith in Jesus. And it's a really good question. Honestly, um, if you're analytical, it's probably a question that you've asked yourself quietly at one point or another. And if you live with someone who isn't analytical, you don't say it to them because then what happens? They're like, why do you ask these questions? 
I may have or may not have had that experience. But anyway, here's, here's the question. Uh, it goes like this. So given Jesus died for our sins and was buried, why doesn't God just forgive and forget our sins? In other words, like, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for sins that he didn't commit? And that really is a great question. In my experience, it's actually a question that can keep people from embracing faith in Jesus. If you ask them what's wrong with that, they would say, well, it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem fair. I mean, couldn't God just have told people that he forgave their sins without needing to sacrifice his one and only son? I had one friend say to me, you know, if I'm honest, I've had the experience of forgiving people for all sorts of awful things that they've done to me, and fortunately, I didn't have to die for them, which is a good point. <laughs> She's like, so why does it have to be any different for God? Like, if we're honest from our perspective, Jesus' death on the cross, it, it just seems it's, it's a bit, maybe, maybe this is radical, but unnecessary. Like, and, and, and then I have another friend say to me, I mean, come on, I can't be the first person that's asked this question. So what's going on? What, what are we missing? Why would a loving God set an unattainable standard for people, then hold us to accountable to that standard, and then kill his one and only son to somehow make us right with him again? Like, why doesn't God just forgive and forget? Well, as it turns out, that not only is a great question, um, it, it's a question that's been right at the center of the Christian faith since the very beginning. Um, it's also a question that happens to have a great answer. And it's an answer that has to do with something that I think we all crave as we navigate life in a world that just doesn't seem right at times. I, I think it has to do with justice. And, and here's what I mean by that. The authors of the Bible make it extremely clear that like us, God values justice. However, and this is where things get complicated, they also affirm that because of sin that is at work in our world, our sense of justice as people is flawed. And before you get defensive, I actually think they're right. I mean, think about it. If we're being honest, we say that we want justice for all, but I don't think we really mean it. So let me, let me show you what I mean. I was, had some fun coming up with this this week. Imagine with me that there were something called a button of justice. And of course it's red, right? And imagine that if you pushed this button of justice, you would instantly get rid of everything unjust in the world right now. Like hypothetically speaking, if such a button existed and you had access to it, would you push it? And I know what you're thinking. Of course I would push it, but hold on a second. Think about this. Have you ever done anything unjust? Don't nudge the person next to you. It's awkward, right? Yeah. How about your children? My children are perfect. I don't know about yours. Yeah, right? And, and while we're at it, um, do you think that perhaps it's conceivable that your dad, prior to meeting your mom, ever did something unjust? I mean, what if before your dad met your mom, someone else had pushed the button? That would be like a back to the future moment, right? Remember this? Yeah. Like, there would never have been a you. And, okay, <clears throat> full disclosure, my friend Jason told me he'd buy me lunch if I could work in a Back to the Future reference into this talk. He didn't even know what the talk was about, but I was like, game on, my dude. So if you ever wonder what pastors do to have a good time, we have lunch and do this kind of stuff. Anyway, what I'm trying to, it's actually a true story. What I'm trying to say is that though, even though it's tempting, if we're being honest, I don't think we'd ever push the button 
of justice. The implications are just, they're just too broad. So, so that said, perhaps we don't want a button of justice, but perhaps what we want is something like a highly directional spray can of justice. You know what I'm talking about here? Now that would be amazing. I mean, I mean, think about it. Like whenever we see an injustice, we could just point and shoot and spray and get rid of it. This would be awesome. Like, like if somebody bullied one of my kids on the playground, I could just spray them away. And, I mean, and don't judge. It's easier than backing over them with a minivan, so that's good. I'm not going to actually back. Somebody's like, I'm going to email. That's not nice. You know, I'm not kidding. Okay. Or, or if someone is unfaithful in their relationship to one of my friends, then I could write that wrong with just a small flex of my finger. So satisfying. Or if someone has the audacity to cut me off in traffic while informing me that I'm number one with their upstretched middle finger, right? I could mount right on the hood of my car and just poof, tension resolved, right? I love the spray can of justice. But of course, there's a problem with it, and you already have caught this. Um, I mean, it works great for me as long as I get to hold the can. <laughs> but no offense, I don't want you holding the can. I mean, I like you, but you know, right? Because you might spray me. Because full disclosure, I have had at least a few times in my life when I have been unjust. So I, I don't want you holding the can. And if I think about it, I really don't want God holding the can, right? I mean, he knows everything. Like, he knows when you've been sleeping. Okay, Costco puts out the Christmas tree so I can pull out my Santa joke. Yeah, he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. Like, by comparison, God makes Santa look absolutely ignorant, right? Yeah. All that to say, there are some real problems with both the button of justice and the spray can of justice. Because honestly, we don't really want to be held accountable for all of the unjust things that we've done, but we kind of do want other people to be held accountable for the bad things that they've done. In fact, if you think about it, that's actually why, if you're anything like me, you tend to get far more worked up over other people's sins than you do your own sin, right? I, I actually believe that's powerful evidence that our sense of justice it just isn't quite right. Like we have a concept of it, but our concept is broken or it's twisted. And so as a result, we have this tendency to underestimate God's righteousness and overestimate our own righteousness. And we underestimate the severity of our sins in the eyes of God. And I, I actually think that's why many people view God allowing Jesus to die for our sins on the cross as a huge overreaction. As it turns out, it's not. It's a problem of perspective. We're not seeing this right. Like, as it turns out, our world is a profoundly dark place, and our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. It's a problem of perspective. And, and this, this shouldn't surprise us, but this problem of perspective has been a challenge really for as long as there have been Christians. In fact, in a letter written to early Jewish Christians... So Jewish people who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they were living in the city of Rome. Paul actually attempted to shift their perspective by explaining why God had to send Jesus to die for our sins. So here's, here's what Paul wrote. He said to them, no one, as in absolutely nobody, will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And law here, again, writing to Jewish Christians, he's talking about the Old Testament law. He's like, you do not get righteous with God by following the rules. He says, oh, and, the, and they're like, okay, Paul, well, what's the point of the rules? He'll tell you. Rather, 
through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, Paul wrote that in the end, all that religious rules can really do is to make us aware of our sins. So as counterintuitive as it seems, and it was counterintuitive for them, and it's counterintuitive for us, knowing religious rules and even keeping religious rules don't make us right with God. As it turns out, that's not how it works because our problem is deeper than that. Again, rules only really serve to remind us that we're rule breakers. And that's why nobody can work their way back into a restored relationship with God by following the rules. And, and so at this point, I imagine, you know, the people who are listening to Paul's letter being read to them are like, well, thanks for the encouraging note, Pastor Paul, right? This is kind of depressing. But, but fortunately, this is only the setup to what Paul really wanted to tell them. Because as he continued to write, he provided his readers with what is, without question, the best news in the history of history. Here's what he wrote. He said, but now, and look at this, apart from the law, outside of the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, and we, again, we need to remember Paul's writing to a Jewish audience. God has provided people with a way back into restored relationship with himself apart from obedience to the Jewish law or as it turns out, obedience to any religious laws. And he said it this way. He said, this righteousness is given not through law, through faith in Christ Jesus to allow all or to all who believe. And then look at this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. He, the Jew's like, well, no, we're God's, you know, we, we've got to deal with God. We've got the Old Testament rules. And Paul's like, yes, and I'm a Jew too. And I get that perspective. You've got to understand Jesus came. Everything has changed. In Jesus, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And look at this. For all, as in everybody, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. In other words, in these verses... Paul informed his readers of some tragically bad news and some astonishingly good news. The bad news, he would say, is that every single person ever has sinned and has fallen short of God's standards. Paul would say nobody is worthy of heaven, not even the best person. He says, but the good news is that every single person ever has been given the opportunity to be restored to a right relationship with God, not by doing good things, but good things are good, but that's not how this works, but by simply placing their faith in what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. Said a bit differently, through the sacrifice of Jesus, God has offered to pay whatever it takes in order to rescue you from your sins and me from my sins and everyone from their sins. And now I just want to acknowledge something. Every time we gather or even tuning in online, there's people that are outside of the Christian faith looking in. And I know this because they email me, which is great questions. And, and if that's you and, and you're just kind of putting this all together, you, you may be thinking something like, okay, so you're telling me that God, like the creator of heaven and earth, literally sacrifices one and only son so that I could have a chance to be right with him. That's what you're saying? Yes. And you actually don't have to take my word for it because Paul said that same thing as he continued to write. Paul said it this way. He said, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And atonement is a word you don't hear outside of church. But it basically means reparations or repayment for damage done. So it's like Paul saying, listen, your relationship with God is damaged because of sin. And God presented Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for sin through the shedding of his blood 
And then he says this, to be received by faith. And he says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. And this is interesting. This next piece, whew, when you see this, it's because in his forbearance or patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And that's super technical, but hang with me because when I first got what he's saying here, like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. What Paul is saying here is that prior to the sacrifice of Jesus, the human race did not get what it deserved because before Jesus came into the world, God was patient with the sins of every human being who had ever been born. And he was patient until the moment when Jesus was sacrificed in order to pay for all sins. Their sins, the people who came before Jesus, the sins in Paul's day, those people that saw Jesus sacrifice with their own eyes, and then future sins, all the sins that you and I commit. Okay, so now check out what Paul wrote next. This is just he says, okay, they're like, okay, why, Paul? Why did he do this? Well, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, Paul writes, after reminding, after reminding his readers that literally everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul wrote that God is both just, there's our justice reason, God is both just and He's the justifier. Said a bit differently, Paul told his Jewish audience that through the Jewish law, God called out the sin in their lives, and then he affirmed that because God is just, there's a real penalty that must be paid for the sins. In fact, later in that same letter, Paul wrote this just a few chapters later. He says, you know, the wages of sin is death. He's like, when you sin, you have to die. That's how it works. That's how it's been since the Garden of Eden. The wages of sin is death, but he said the good news, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which sort of brings us back to the question of the day. Like, why didn't God just forgive and forget? Why would he require Jesus to die for sins, for our sins? And I like to think of it this way. In answer to that question. Because of justice, God demands payment. Because of mercy, he delayed payment. And because of grace, he made the payment himself. I'm going to read that again. Because of justice, God demands payment. Because of mercy, he delayed payment. And because of grace, he made the payment himself. And I'm telling you, um, this is why the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago was announced as good news of great joy for all people. Because it is that, and it's so much more than that. And, and by the way, it's also why around here, like since the very beginning, Keystone is almost 30 years old. And since the very beginning, one of the core things that we've tied off on is that we will never put anything between someone and a restored relationship with God other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's how it was supposed to have been from the very beginning. That's the good news of why Jesus came to earth. That's the gospel. It literally means good news. People heard about this all over the ancient world, and they said, man, that is 
that is incredible. That is good news. And the absolutely incredible news is that God is simultaneously just and the justifier. Moreover, because he loves you and I so much, he has invited us and not coerced us to be restored to him by grace through faith in what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. And so I guess, I guess you could say that in the end, the only question that matters for any of us is whether or not we've received Jesus' sacrifice for our sins individually. And I'm telling you, maybe you grew up in a religious environment and, and you, you know the stories about Jesus, but, but you've never had that moment when you've said, God, I, I want to be a part of, of your kingdom. I want Jesus to be my king and my Lord. I want to be with you forever. I want to be restored in my relationship with you. Maybe you've been around church for decades and you've just never had that moment. Or maybe, um, you know, you're here today and you really have very little religious background, but the world is just such a dumpster fire of chaos right now. You're here going, if there's a God of peace, I want to connect with that God. And if you're here this morning, it's possible that something clicked in you and you said, you know what, I, I mean, I'm new to this game. I don't know any of the Jesus stories, but what that, I mean, that, I want to be a part of that kingdom and if, and that, if, if that, that makes sense to you. So, so kind of whatever your situation, I'm telling you today is a great day to place your faith in Jesus because belief in Jesus is essential. Specifically the belief that Jesus died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen for 2,000 years. Christians have made this profession. They've simply said, I believe, please rescue me and make me part of your kingdom, God. And, and so, so what I want to do before we close our time together uh, is just to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. And, and this is kind of new for me. So if it's awkward, it's awkward for me too. I want you to do it out loud. Okay. And you're like, nope, tap it out. I don't do participation in church. One way monologue. That's why the lights are down. I get it. I get it. You know, if you, you know, if, if you don't, I won't know. So it's okay. It's between you and God. But I, I want to invite you to pray a prayer out loud that simply says to God, I believe. Like, I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that you are both just so sin must be punished, and you're the justifier. You punished Jesus for me. And I believe that in Jesus, you made a way for me to be restored in my relationship with you, and I want to be restored. So God, I'm in. Just a simple prayer of faith, just to express to him that you want to be a part of what he's doing in our world. And so um, what I want to do is invite you to stand. And we're going to put the words up on the screen. And if you grew up in church and are like, we always used to recite things together, you're going to get some flashbacks, okay? I'm telling you right now. You're like, oh, why don't we do that? Now we're doing it. And I'm going to get emails. Don't ever do that again. Okay, whatever. We're trying it. Um, yeah, so just, uh, and if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, it's a great prayer to pray. It's just a prayer of commitment. Um, or if you would like to become a Christian right now, like for the first time, it's great. But for, like you do that many times. I don't know. It's a, you know. For you, it's the first time. I invite you to just read this prayer out loud with me. And, and one more quick disclaimer, if you're here and you're searching and you're seeking and you're not sure yet about Jesus, we are so honored that you are with us. The people who regularly donate to make this place happen, that's one of the things that we want to make sure we're always a safe place to ask questions. And so we're just so honored you're here. So please don't feel any pressure to say something that you don't believe yet. But uh, for the rest of us, um, if you're willing, 
Let's pray this out loud together. So we'll put it up on the screens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know I've sinned. I've fallen short of your standards over and over again. I also know that my sin created a debt I could never repay. But I believe that Jesus' death on the cross paid off the debt of my sin. Here and now, I place my trust in him as my Savior. Thank you for rescuing me. In Jesus' name, amen. And in just a moment, um, I'm going to pray to close our time together. But um, if you just prayed that prayer and you just want to talk to somebody, you don't have to. It's between you and God. But we just want to make ourselves available. There will be some volunteers and friends under the screen to the left. Or if you came in here for any other reason, you just want to, you just need someone to pray with you. We would be honored to do just that. But let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are gathered because you are good and your gospel is grace. And it's amazing. Thank you for loving us, not because we are good, but because you are good. Thank you for making a way where there was no way. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. You are so good. And we just desire to be a people who carry your message of love and hope and peace into a world that so desperately needs it. So I pray a blessing on each of, each of my friends that have gathered in this place. Use us to reflect the light of Jesus to our families, to our community, and to our world. He is worthy. And it is in his name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Well, friends, it has been amazing to be with you. Grace and peace. We'll see you next week.